Come with me to hell and back with Doom, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again on a slight delay, I must add, uh, to talk again about a wonderful game or game series from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So I mentioned it a little bit just then, but uh, I guess I'll have to say right off the top of the show, I do sincerely apologize for uh, for missing last week. I know uh, the show's out one week late, so... I'm uh, I'm resetting the two week schedule starting from this week, and um, yeah, I mean, I was just uh, I was I was away for work. Uh, I guess not this week, but the week before, and uh, I thought I kind of had everything all set up so that I could uh, I could hammer out the show. I even chose a topic that I knew very intimately, and um, you know, it just didn't work out. I didn't uh, I didn't quite realize that uh, heading away to a to a conference in in Vegas involved uh, so little sleep and uh, and everything. Like that, so I got back in kind of Thursday afternoon, having not slept for over twenty four hours, and um, you know I just did not have this the energy to uh, to to do what I normally do and to write up the show and uh, and and get it out. So I decided kind of on uh, on Saturday evening or maybe even Sunday morning that it just wasn't going to happen, and uh, I was going to put off the show by one week. But now we are here and we are doing the show. I have so much to say. This is such an incredible topic. I chose this topic this week because I thought it would be an easy one to do because I know the game so well. But as it turns out, this topic is so huge and so big that I have so much to say this week that uh, we're not even going to really have much in the way of news. So let's get rolling. So as I said, uh, no no real news segment this week. I've got way too much to talk about. I'll, I'll really pick it up. Uh, pick up the news next week. All I'm going to say off the top of my head is that uh, Chris Roberts's Star Citizen project that we talked about a couple episodes ago has successfully funded and now they're in stretch goal territory. So if you're still interested in seeing what's going on with that, seeing what the stretch goals are and uh, and getting in on the news and, and other stuff like that, you can check that out over at robertsspaceindustries.com. That's it for news. Um, before we do get rolling, however, I did get a little note from a new listener named Paul. Paul writes, Thanks for making this great show. I just discovered it a couple of weeks ago, and I've listened to all of the episodes so far, except I skipped the story part of Gabriel Knight because that is on my to-play-soon list, and I didn't want to risk spoilers. Looking forward to all your future episodes. Thanks, Paul. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I'm glad um, you were able to find the show. I'm glad people are still finding the show and uh and i'm glad that you are going to play gabriel knight i i was actually quite surprised with uh, the feedback that i got on uh, on that specific gabriel knight show that not as many people as uh, as i had thought had heard of the game and uh or had heard of the series at all so uh again i'm glad i'm exposing these things to people and and people are seeing games they may have missed or uh are being exposed to games for the first time and all that kind of thing so thank you so much you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so this is one of the uh, one of the weeks where I've got a ton to say. So we're going to get on to the main topic, Doom. So the Doom series was created by the guys at id Software and consists of, I guess we could say, at least three games. The first of which came out in 1993 and was simply named Doom, which, of course, is in all capital letters. There's no, uh, there's no small letters in the, in, in the universe of Doom. So, of course, Doom is a first-person shooter, since we usually talk about a genre. We covered the details of exactly what a first-person shooter game is way back in Episode 7, which, God, is 10 episodes ago now, uh, when I talked about Wolfenstein 3D. As a quick refresher, a first-person shooter, or FPS game, places the player directly into the body of the game's protagonist, looking out of their eyes from a first-person perspective. 
FPS games require you to guide your character through a variety of levels or missions. Uh, this is generally accomplished by traversing a level from starting gate to ending gate. Between, you're challenged by a variety of enemies and puzzles, which uh, which usually involve finding things like key cards or flipping switches, which uh, which can be used to open locked doors or to reveal new passages. Uh, to defeat enemies, though, you're provided with a variety of weapons. You generally begin with something small, such as a handgun or something to that effect, but you quickly upgrade to much more destructive weaponry. Weapons can range from realistic, kind of uh, you know, real-world type guns or things like that, to magical, different spells, different elemental magic, things like that, to, to sci-fi weapons. But, uh, you know, they're, they're generally ranged in nature. When all your ammunition is exhausted, most FPSs offer the option of hand-to-hand -hand or melee combat, though this is generally reserved as a last resort, as it tends to be much more ineffective as it exposes the player to much more damage from enemies at close range. So, on to the story of Doom. Much like its predecessor, Wolfenstein 3D, the story in the original Doom is very, very light. As with games I've already covered, such as Star Control and Syndicate and things like that, the background story, such as it is, is given in the game's manual. So when it comes to Doom, the story goes like this. You are an unnamed space marine who has been posted to Mars as punishment for assaulting his commanding officer after being ordered to fire upon civilians. As part of this posting, you are required to work alongside the United Aerospace Corporation, or UAC, which is a large military contractor performing top-secret research into interdimensional travel. Despite recent evidence of instability and anomalous readings, the research continues unabated. Unsurprisingly, soon enough something goes horribly, horribly wrong. The test gate stationed on Mars's moon Phobos suddenly starts spewing out hordes of demonic creatures. The other moon, Demios, disappears completely. The installation on Phobos is quickly overrun. All base personnel who are not killed are transformed into mindless zombies bent on killing anything or anyone that's still living. You are part of a military detachment sent up from Mars to Phobos to investigate the incident. You're given a position on the perimeter to defend well, uh, while the assault team enters the base complex. Radio contact soon ceases and you come to realize that you are the only survivor of the entire Mars detachment. Since you're unable to pilot the shuttle yourself, the only method of escape is to fight your way through the moon base and get to the experimental teleporter. This is where episode one, Knee Deep in the Dead, begins. You fight your way through the high-tech military research base on Phobos, culminating in a final confrontation in the teleporter room with a massive horde of demons. Since you both do not have the time and lack the technical knowledge to reset the endpoint of the teleporter, you leap into the gate and are transported to the now-missing moon base on Demios. After completing episodes, you're given another small dab of story. Upon escaping from Phobos to Demios, you are presented with the following text on a screen. Once you beat the big badasses and clean out the moon base, you're supposed to win, aren't you? Aren't you? Where's your fat reward and ticket home? What the hell is this? It's not supposed to end this way. It stinks like rotten meat, but it looks like the lost Demios base. Looks like you're stuck on the shores of hell. The only way is through. To continue the Doom experience, play the shores of hell in its amazing sequel, Inferno. As much as that does give you a little bit of story, it also reads quite a bit like an ad for the other two episodes. Uh, this makes sense, since episode one of the game was put out as shareware. Uh, to play the next two episodes, you had to upgrade to the full version of the game by sending money to id. So if you do send id that money, you get access to episode two, The Shores of Hell. So episode two has the same goal as the first episode, but in reverse, where on Phobos, you had to fight your way into the base. You now have to fight your way out of it. Uh, on your journey, you notice that the base seems to be undergoing some sort of transformation. The high-tech facility seems to be get getting kind of interwoven and melded into a much more organic and beastly looking architecture. It's a seemingly melding into the new environment the moon has been teleported into. In the last level of the episode, you encounter the Cyber Demon, a half-machine, half-horned devil sporting a clawed hand on one side and an arm-mounted rocket launcher on the other. After defeating him, you find out why the moon is changing. It seems as though Demios, and now you, have been teleported into orbit above hell itself. The final episode, Inferno, 
begins after you've made your way from Demios down to the surface of hell. It seems that the only way to get out alive at this point is to seek out the source of the invasion. You make your way through hell, defeating hordes of demons until the final battle with the spider demon, the mastermind of the invasion. After his defeat, a gate opens back to earth. You step into a verdant field filled with flowers and bunny rabbits. Before you can take in the whole scene, the camera pans over to reveal a severed rabbit's head on a stake and a burning city in the distance. It seems that the demons have indeed made it to Earth, leading directly into the sequel, Doom 2, Hell on Earth. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Alright, so that is the story. So let's get on to the gameplay. So... There's a lot more story there than I actually thought there was, and uh, it's most definitely more than you're given playing through the game itself. I'm not going to spend tons and tons of time on gameplay. Again, being that Doom is the direct technological successor to Wolfenstein 3D, I don't really need to cover the gameplay of an id FPS in a ton of detail over again. As with Wolf 3D, you start off in an isolated room with a single pistol in your possession. As you make your way through the level, you quickly encounter your first enemies, former humans. These are standard, weak enemies who have been possessed by demons, and while they appear to be carrying assault rifles, they only fire one shot at a time as if they carried pistols. These are very similar to kind of the uh, the basic Nazi soldiers in Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, they're very easily dispatched. Next up, we have former human sergeants. They carry a shotgun, and uh, they do quite a bit more damage, but can be killed just as easily as uh, as as the former humans. Killing them also yields you a shotgun if you don't already have one. Next up are former commandos. These guys carry chain guns and can take you down pretty easily if you get in front of them. One room in episode one has four or five of these guys in different nooks all around the room. Getting caught in their crossfire will take you down in a second, so you really gotta approach these guys with caution. As for true demonic enemies, the imp is slow-moving and fires equally slow-moving fireballs from range and uses its claws up close. They take a few pistol shots to down or a single close-range shotgun blast. Uh, after the imp, we have the demon, which is kind of designed to look like a demonic pink bull, and uh, it will run at you and attack you with teeth. Two shotgun blasts will down them, but the best defense against these guys is to move away while you're shooting so that they can't get within range of you since they don't actually have a ranged attack. Finally, there's the specter. These are simply nearly invisible versions of the demon. In a darkened room, they're quite hard to see, which makes them tougher to avoid. There's many more enemies in the game, which, uh, you know, they're, they're a little more specialized. They don't show up quite as often. But those are kind of the six, uh, the six standard enemies that you tend to encounter in your journeys through, uh, through the moon base and into hell. Of course, the biggest fun in Doom is killing these enemies with a variety of weapons. As you may have concluded, while Wolf 3D set the benchmark for what the core of a first-person shooter game was, Doom fleshed out the rest of the details that we considered to be required for any modern FPS game. This is most evident when it comes to weapons. Where Wolfenstein gave you four basic weapons, Doom provides seven, most of which have become the primordial kind of stable of weapon types for all FPS games to come. Uh, Doom weapons start off with bare fists. When all else fails and you have no ammo, you can still hit demons with your hands. Of course, the preferred Doom melee weapon is the chainsaw. The chainsaw causes about four times more damage than the fist alone. Against certain slow-moving enemies, the chainsaw can actually be quite effective. It is also a staple of Doom, appearing in many, many ads for the game, despite the fact that there don't appear to be any trees anywhere in the game, which makes you question why there'd be a chainsaw on Mars in the first place. When you pick it up, the message, a chainsaw, find some meat, pops onto the screen. Aside from melee weapons, you spend most of your time using the game's ranged weapon arsenal. From the venerable pistol, shotgun, and chain gun, up to the rocket launcher, plasma gun, and of course, the BFG-9000. BFG, if you don't know, stands for big effing gun. And of course, effing is not uh, pronounced effing when, uh, when you're playing the game. It's pronounced the other way. All weapons fall into two camps, uh, projectile and hit scan. Most weapons, including the melee weapons, are of the hit scan category. That is, there is no delay between the moment they're fired and the moment they hit their target. So if you have your pistol in your hand, you shoot it. There's no way if you aimed you know, directly at the enemy that they can avoid that bullet. The rocket launcher, however, and the BFG-9000 are not hitscan. Their projectiles have a flight time and cause splash damage over a certain area. If enemies can get out of the damage zone in time, 
they will not suffer damage. This, the same can be said of the imp's fireballs. They are not hit scan. So if you get out of the fireball's way, you won't take any damage. Now, there's one sticking point you see very quickly with the weapons in Doom. Unlike Wolfenstein 3D, where the entire game took place kind of on a single level playing field, Doom has the capability to create vertical separation in the maps. You could fall into pits, monsters can stand on raised ledges or platforms, ride elevators, etc. There was one problem with this. Your character does not have the ability to aim his weapons up and down. You can only fire straight ahead. This was fixed by giving all the weapons kind of a vertical auto-aiming feature. If you fire towards an enemy who is not standing at the same vertical elevation or altitude as you, your shots will move up or down accordingly. I guess in the game world, it's kind of assumed that your avatar was aiming to hit those enemies, even though your controls do not actually allow you to do such a thing. The rocket launcher in Doom is also a very special weapon in that it allows the player to do something that was not included in the original game engine, and that's jumping. There was no integrating jumping functionality in either Doom or Doom 2. The most a player could move vertically was 24 map units. This caused very low walls in the game to be impassable. I mean, this wasn't an issue, as all game maps had clear routes through them because this was a design decision. It wasn't necessarily something they hadn't thought of. However, though, if you had a rocket launcher, full health and armor, or temporary invulnerability, you could fire the rocket launcher at the ground near you. The knockback effect from the blast would propel you away on kind of a ballistic trajectory. Uh, the only time this was needed in-game was to get to a secret area in Episode 3, Mission 6, called Mount Erebus, or Erebus, sorry, Mount Erebus. It was also a tactic that would come in handy in multiplayer matches. Rocket jumping would become hugely popular in follow-on game, FPS games like Quake, Unreal Tournament, Half-Life 2, and eventually Team Fortress 2, where it's something that was actually integrated into the game as an ability. In addition to weapons, a variety of defensive items could also be acquired. In Wolf 3D, you only really had the concept of health. In Doom, you also wear armor. Armor serves as an additional layer of protection. As long as you have more than 0% armor, it will absorb one-third of all incoming damage. The other two-thirds will deplete from your health directly. In addition, health bonuses can increase your health up over 100%. Also like Wolf 3D, Doom was full of secret areas filled with better weapons and power-ups and other stuff like that. Now, I may not have to say this, but I'm going to another huge element of Doom gameplay was, of course, multiplayer. It's also one I partook in quite a bit. Doom has two multiplayer game modes. The default mode was cooperative. In this mode, two to four players could play through the game's single player levels together, killing monsters just as they would as if they were playing on their own. This mode was all well and good, but the Doom devs realized that players would have the most fun blowing up their friends. They created a head-to-head -head competition mode in which two to four players could battle each other over a network. And a little bit later on, with the advent of Doom version 1.2, which came out a few months after release, uh, users could play a simple 1v1 match via Modem Connect. They called this head-to-head -head mode Deathmatch. Indeed, this was the advent of Deathmatch. While modem play was fun, the four-player Deathmatch was incredible. Now, in 1993, it wasn't standard to have multiple computers networked together via a switch or a router or other stuff like we have today. Even if a home had more than one computer, it was highly unlikely that they were connected together, or if they were, it was maybe by, via a serial cable occasionally. Uh, networking hardware was very, very expensive, and DOS didn't support networking out of the box. Four-player deathmatch became the bane of corporate IT departments and college network administrators. Employees at companies and students with computer lab access at educational institutions would install Doom and play it whenever they could. Early morning, lunch, after hours, deathmatch was a phenomenon. John Romero, who we'll talk about in a bit as kind of the one of the creators of Doom, was a huge presence on the deathmatch scene, partaking in deathmatch-related Usenet groups, AOL chat rooms, IRC channels, and on Dwango, which was a service created shortly after Doom's release to support four-player modem gaming. Not only was he a huge proponent of deathmatch, he was probably one of the best deathmatch players out there. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... As with most of the id games that came before it, 
Doom was groundbreaking at the time it came out. The thing that made Doom so incredible was, of course, its engine, as created by John Carmack, id's programming genius. Carmack's goal in creating his game engines was usually the same, the creation of a game that provided very fast-paced action in a realistic and immersive world. The immersive world part was pretty easy. The fast-paced part was always the challenge. PCs just didn't have the hardware or processing power to render graphics at the speed that early 90s game consoles could. Because of this, he was forced to innovate. Doom's engine, also known as id Tech 1, was based on a top-down 2D map-style representation of the level map. At its most basic level, each map consists of a set of points, or vertexes, as they are referred to in the code. I guess the, the proper term for those would be vertices, but Carmack called them vertexes. No one ever said that he was a, a scholar. Vertexes are linked together to form lines. These lines, known as line defs, could be one-sided or two-sided. A one-sided line def acts as a solid wall. A two-sided line def acted as a see-through wall or other separator between areas with different floor or ceiling heights. Graphical information about one or both of a line def's sides are stored in what's called a side def. Side defs can store a total of three textures, a top, middle, and bottom. In a one-sided side def, only the middle texture is used. This, te this is a texture you would see on a regular solid wall. On a two-sided side def, the middle texture is usually left blank to create a top and bottom small wall with a gap in the middle. Smaller side defs could be used to mask changes in height between sectors or to form things like stairs. A group of side defs together form what are called sectors. Sectors represent individual rooms or areas of a level. Sectors have a common set of properties such as floor height, ceiling height, light level, and floor and ceiling textures. So. How's all the, how are all these lines and points and things rendered? Well, if you recall back to our chat about Descent in episode 10, I talked a little bit about the concept of binary space partitioning. This is the process by which the visible faces of a 3D environment are placed into a data structure called a binary tree. Each node on the tree represents a particular area of the level. As you travel down the tree, you start to build a list of line depths that you need to draw the current view. When you get to the bottom of the tree, that is a, what we call a leaf node, you've arrived at a solid polygon which has nothing to draw beyond it. Now this concept, it does, I was going to say it may sound simple, but frankly it doesn't sound simple, it sounds complicated. It's not exactly straightforward. Uh, if you'd like a more complex description of it, I go into more detail back in episode 10. But suffice it to say that the BSP algorithm wasn't invented by Carmack. It was invented by some crazy computer science guys way back in the 60s and 70s, but he certainly puts it to good use in development of a high-performance 3D rendering engine. Instead of rendering, as I said in episode 10, the entire map all the time, he only renders the parts of the map that are visible, and that saves a lot of computing power because you're not ever rendering anything that isn't on the screen. So the walls are drawn vertically as columns of texture. In effect, they are grown straight up out of the line defs defined on the level's floor plan up to the height of the ceiling. So I guess you could kind of say, pretend the, the map of the level, which you can actually see in game, they actually use the, uh, the level definition line map drawing as the, uh, the game's in-game map. So I'll pretend you take that map and instead of looking at it from straight on, you just kind of tilt it a little bit and take all the lines and raise them up from uh, from vertical, you know, perpendicular to the floor. That is how the walls are drawn. Uh, however, this does expose two limitations of the Doom engine. Firstly, you can't really have walls that tilt in or out diagonally. You can have walls that, that move diagonally across the map, but you can never have something that tilts in on you kind of a thing. It's always going to be straight up and down. Secondly, while you can have sectors with different floor and ceiling heights, you can't have rooms that are vertically stacked on top of each other. This obviously limits the complexity of the maps to some degree. Another interesting aspect of Doom's engine has to do with floors and ceilings. In the previous engine used in Wolfenstein 3D, which is unofficially known as id Tech Zero, one way Carmack saved a lot of CPU power was by making floors and ceilings solid colors instead of having textures on them, and also have them set to a single uniform height. 
This was not to be the case in Doom. As we discussed, a Doom map contains sectors which define differing ceiling heights and textures. These were rendered in a sort of, uh, you can call it flood fill method. So think of a simple paint program's paint bucket tool where you'd click on an area and it would get filled with your selected color. That's sort of how the floors and ceilings were drawn in. Each section of floor and ceiling were split into what are known as viz planes. That is a common run of floor or ceiling with matching heights and textures. Due to technical limitations in the method of drawing, Doom levels were limited to 128 individual viz planes in a level. If a map exceeded the maximum, the game would simply crash with a no more viz planes error. So basically, as the vertical walls are rendered, the viz planes, which are the ceiling of the floors, are also filled in. Uh, this always doesn't happen at necessarily the right speed in relation to each other, so at times you may notice some holes in the floor or ceiling. These are rendering errors due to problems in the flood fill algorithm. Finally, we get to everything else in the game world, which Carmack simply named Things. A thing in the Doom engine is basically a sprite. Each sector has a list of associated things that go in it along with specific starting positions. This consists of anything that isn't a wall or a ceiling. So enemies, power-ups, exploding barrels, everything else are all considered things. These are drawn in order from farthest away to closest. Now, I could go on about this engine for hours, but that's the basic way a game scene is rendered. That happens every time the screen updates, which, if you've seen Doom, is about 30 or 30 times or more every second. This engine is a breakthrough in PC gaming. Wolfenstein's engine laid the groundwork, but this engine would truly become a powerhouse. The great thing about it is that it was designed from the ground up to be modified and extended by the community. Fans of Wolfenstein found ways to hack the engine to make it do what they wanted. It designed this one so they could do it out of the box. Map data was stored in what would become known as WAD files. WAD stands for Where's All the Data, and these files can be edited either by hand or with a WAD editing program. So that's about all I'm going to say on the engine specifically. But as usual, the other thing I love chatting about in the tech focus section is the game's music. The music in Doom was created by Bobby Prince, the same composer who created the great music from Wolfenstein 3D. The music was MIDI and was composed to the general MIDI standard. These tracks sound incredible on my Roland SC55. Uh, Bobby Prince has talked extensively about working on Doom's music. The id guys wanted Prince to develop a soundtrack consisting entirely of metal songs for Doom. The majority of the music was just that, inspired by bands like Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth, Pantera, Black Sabbath, and more. Though the id guys wanted only metal, Prince thought some variety was in order. In interview, Bobby was talking about the track At Doom's Gate, which is the music from the first level of episode one. He states, The id software development team originally wanted me to do nothing but metal songs for Doom. I did not think that this type of music would be appropriate throughout the game, but I roughed out several original songs and also created MIDI sequences of some cover material. This was before any level design and was before most of the artwork had been created. As the game came together, the guys at id saw this type of music was not appropriate for many of the levels in Doom. Thinking that this would be the case, I had also roughed out a lot of ambient, moody background music, much of which ended up in the game. This song was one of the first of its type that I wrote. I heard it as being on a level that went by real fast. As it turns out, John Romero, who placed all the songs on the levels, decided it was the perfect song for the first level. So here we have At Doom's Gate from Episode 1, Mission 1.
Prince would also take inspiration for the songs from members of the dev team and their fanatical work ethic on the project. The track, The Demons from Adrian's Pen, played in Episode 2, Mission 2, has this story behind it. This song was inspired by watching Adrian Carmack, the lead artist at id Software, while he was touching up the artwork on the spider boss in Doom. Adrian conceived the demons in Doom. He starts out doing a pencil sketch. The sketch is then either transferred into computer art by hand, or it is made into a model which is then digitized. The digitizing of the model sounds simple, but there is much that has to be done before the digitized artwork can be used. A good bit-level artist is worth his or her weight in gold when it comes to superior game artwork. Starting about 1 minute and 12 seconds into the song, you will hear a musical technique that helps to keep a song interesting without being obvious. What the composer does is change the feel of the downbeat. There are many ways to do this, but in this case, I started playing the bass drum and snare drum parts in an eighth note later than when it had been played up to that time. This makes the music feel like it's pushing ahead while seeming to rotate or turn around. It's almost the same thing as causing a car to start spinning out of control. At 1 minute 36 seconds, the car all of a sudden jerks back out of the spin. So here we have that song right there. Oh, that's some eerie stuff. So finally, the song Deep Into the Code from Episode 3, Mission 3 was inspired by John Carmack himself. About this song and Carmack, Prince states, If everyone at id Software worked as long and hard as John Carmack, id Software would be absolutely untouchable by any competition. Everyone else at id would answer this by saying they have a life outside of developing games. John would answer that he does too, but he'd rather be programming all the time. The reason I bring this up is that, while I was at id during the development of Doom, I stayed in the office many, many hours myself. After all, that's where all of my transplanted music toys were located. As a result of long hours at the office, John and I were often there at the same same wee hours of the night. John would only leave his office to nab a coke or run to the men's room. That is, except when he had something special programmed and wanted someone to see it. Those kinds of things happen a lot around John, too. He's always coming up with some cool addition to his engines. Many times in those wee hours, 
I would come to a point where I couldn't make positive progress towards completing a song or sound effect. I would go out into the main room where a pool table sat and just roll the balls around the table. I could look into John's office, and he would be sitting there in a world of his own, oblivious to anything else going on. When I worked on this song, I took a break at the pool table and saw John working away. That's when the name of this song hit me. So here we have Deep Into the Code, Episode 3, Mission 3, inspired by John Carmack. listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for So, we've already chatted quite a bit about the development of Doom from a technical aspect, but let's look at the people involved. Now, I'm not going to reiterate the history of id Software. If you'd like to hear about John Romero, John Carmack, Adrian Carmack, and Tom Hall, their days at Softdisk, Dangerous Dave, Commander Keen, and all the rest feel free to run back to episode 7, like I said, from June of this year on Wolfenstein 3D. So, we're past all that. We're in May 1992. Wolfenstein 3D has released two raving reviews. The bulk of its development team were hard at work putting out Spear of Destiny, the direct sequel to Wolfenstein. John Carmack, though, founder and programming genius behind all of its technology and a little bit of an odd duck himself, decided that working on a sequel using the same technology as the previous game was a waste of his massive talent. Instead of helping out on that game, he decided to use this supposed slack time to begin research on id's next game engine. As he did for Wolfenstein, he isolated himself from the rest of the team and got to work. So using Wolfenstein's feature set as a base, he set out to make his next-gen first-person shooter game. There were some things in Wolfenstein Carmack wished he could have done. Wolf 3D was a very brightly lit game. It was a fun game to play, but it lacked a sort of atmosphere of tension. Carmack implemented diminished lighting in his new engine. This way, different rooms could have different light levels, and the general light level of the game could be made darker and more ominous. He also hated that the floors and ceilings in Wolfenstein were solid colors. Again, it made the game appear too cartoony. Finally, the rooms in the game have to have a much grander scale than the fixed-height hallways of Wolf 3D. With these new features, Carmack had the beginning of what would become the Doom Engine. Diminished lighting, texture map floors and ceilings, and variable height levels all set up on a grid-based map system which was similar to that of Wolfenstein's. This, I guess we could call it Intermediate Engine, was licensed out to a company called Raven Software for their 1993 RPG game Shadowcaster. Shadowcaster was a much slower game than Wolfenstein was, based more around exploration and collecting inventory items than fast-moving action combat. 
This intermediate engine worked very well for that type of game that Shadowcaster was. However, Carmack was really not satisfied. The game looked great, but it ran at about half the speed of Wolfenstein 3D. He had to find a way to speed it back up to Wolf 3D levels if they were going to create their own FPS game from this. He realized the reason things were slowing down was due to the way he was drawing the map. Drawing out the whole grid-based map wasn't cutting it. This is where he decided to convert things over to the sector-based BSP tree model that we've already discussed in the tech focus section. So, Spear of Destiny released in 1992. They had an engine that looked awesome and ran fast, and now they needed a game to build on top of it. This is where some internal conflict started to rear its head at id. Initially, the idea was to license the Alien franchise from 20th Century Fox and do a shooter based on that. Eventually, though, they ditched this plan in favor of their own ideas in the interest of their own creative freedom. Carmack came up with the idea for the game, Technology vs. Demons, kind of a mashup of Alien and Evil Dead. The team had a long-running Dungeons & Dragons campaign, which had recently ended with demons overrunning the entire planet. That was their game. However, creative director Tom Hall wasn't very interested in this theme for their next game. He loved id's initial series, Commander Keen, and very much wanted to continue that game series with another sequel in the new engine. The rest of the team convinced him that Keen's cartoony, fun style wasn't a good fit for the new, kind of realistic-looking, ominous, dark 3D engine. He agreed, and he got on board. However, there was one thing he was adamant about. Wolfenstein 3D was effectively a plotless game. Their next game would not be it would have an intricate and engaging story in addition to great action. To this end, he created a large and detailed design document, which he entitled the Doom Bible. In it, he outlined an interesting story. The game was to take place on an alien planet called Te Tenga, on which the UAAF, which is the United Aerospace Armed Forces, had two military research bases. There would be four player characters with different personalities and abilities. Lorelai Chen, John Petro Petrovich, Dmitry Paramo, and Thai Barrett. Buddy Dakote or Dakote or something like that was a character that was captured by the demons in the intro and contrary to popular belief, was never meant to be a playable character. Uh, he was planned to interact with the play of player via radio messages, giving you hints during the first episode, and uh, he was to be killed by the boss of the first episode when the player arrived. Dakote stood for dies at the conclusion of the episode, and uh, the game would start with the five characters playing a game of cards with creatures from hell suddenly bursting in. There would be a total of six episodes with storylines involving traveling to hell and back through the gates which the Hellspawn used. Eventually the planet would be destroyed and our players would be blamed for it and be sent to jail. He outlined a lot of other elements such as a hub-based transport system to simulate a single contiguous world. John Carmack hated this idea and effectively just vetoed it, scrapping the Doom Bible. The game would be simple and fast-paced. He is reported to have stated, Story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not that important. This conflict would eventually cause Hall to leave id in mid-1993 to join Apogee, the company id had successfully distributed Commander Keen with. He would go on to create great games with them, like Rise of the Triad and Terminal Velocity. So in the Doom Bible, though, Hall had designed quite a few levels for his game. They were viewed as kind of dull. They were Wolfenstein 3D-style flat areas filled with desks and other office furniture. John Romero, lead game designer for id, started creating these large, varied, abstract, and stylized levels for Doom. It was decided that this was the way they were going to go. Finally, we get to the art. In the Wolfenstein episode, I never talked very much about id's art designer, Adrian Carmack. He is an interesting fellow. Adrian was a quiet, artistic child growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana. At 13, his father died of a heart attack. This caused him to withdraw even deeper into himself. He spent the bulk of his time illustrating in a very dark and very gritty style. To earn money while he was in high school, uh, he got a job as an aide in the communications department at a local hospital. Part of his job was to photocopy photos taken of patients in the emergency room. Adrian took a strange liking to these photos, so he'd save copies for himself and trade them with his friends. Over this time, uh, his artwork became even darker, but even more skillful. A teacher suggested he take an internship in the art department at Softdisk to gain some work experience. 
He did so, and here he encountered John Romero and John Carmack. At the age of 21, he'd leave with them to form id. For a long time, Adrian chafed at the work he was required to do at id. Commander Keen was a very cutesy and cartoony game. This conflicted very, very much with his own dark art style. He would try to occasionally drop in something of himself, Keen dying in a pile of guts or melting gruesomely in acid, and he was generally told to tone these things down. Now, Wolfenstein was a big step up. He could create graphic death animations, Nazi demons, and lots of blood and gore. But Doom was the perfect assignment for Adrian. He worked with another artist, Kevin Cloud, to create the dark and disturbing visuals for Doom. They drew some sprites by hand, but other more complex characters, like uh, the bosses, they would digitize from clay models. They also got in-game textures from random places such as Adrian's snakeskin boots or uh, a wound, kind of this gross scab that Cloud had one day on his knee. Doom released a huge acclaim and huge controversy. As with Wolf 3D, the first episode was released via shareware for free download or cheap purchase. An upgrade fee got you episodes 2 and 3. The fast-paced gameplay, deathmatch multiplayer, graphical style, and fidelity hadn't been seen before. It was an instant phenomenon for gamers and an instant source of hatred for anti-gaming press due to any combination of its extreme violence, demonic and satanic themes, and multiplayer gaming mode where you kill other human players. Right after this, work on Doom 2, Hell on Earth, was immediately begun. It ran on the same engine as the first game, with no major technological advances. More monster types were added, as, uh, as was the double-barreled super shotgun. Doom 2 took place along a single large episode, which culminates in the destruction of the Icon of Sin, stopping the Hell invasion once and for all. One interesting note is at the end of Doom 2, there's a secret door right inside the Icon of Sin, which reveals what you have actually killed. It's John Romero's head on a stake. Adrian Carmack and Kevin Cloud put it in as a joke, and John Carmack decided that it was the object you actually needed to kill to win the game. It was hard to hit, as it was down a hidden passage in the middle of the icon. Romero took it well and went along, recording his voice to represent the icon. Doom 2 was seen as a refinement to the incredible success that was Doom 1. It was just as, if not more, successful than the first game. But of course, Doom 2 wasn't the end of the story. Jump to the year 2000. Quake 3 Team Arena has just been released. Romero has left id to form Ion Storm, but Carmack is still running strong at id. Carmack was trying something different. After seeing the rise of MMO games such as EverQuest, he wanted to make not only a fun game, but a large, realistic, persistent world. He decided to start work on such a game using the next-gen engine that he was designing named id Tech 4. So we've already had an id Tech 2 and an id Tech 3 in the intervening years, and now it is time for id Tech 4. Development on what he simply called Quest meandered around, unfocused, not really sure what it should contain, what it should do, because the way they had done things in the past would Karma was Carmack would build an engine and then they'd build a game on top of it. But Carmack was having some trouble building a very focused feature set for a game that he didn't really have any inkling of, you know, what, what it would do. So Carmack realized what he really wanted to do was another Doom. Kevin Cloud and Adrian Carmack were completely opposed to the idea. One of the biggest criticisms against id was that they went back to the well too often. You know, they had done Doom, and then Doom 2, Wolfenstein, and then Spear of Destiny, Quake, Quake 2, Quake 3, Quake 3 Arena. They just kept going back to the same games over and over again and improving them. Carmack let the idea of a new Doom slip to a group of newer staff, along with a story about the success of the recently released reboot, Return to Castle Wolfenstein. They went to the other owners and said if they couldn't work on a new Doom, they'd quit. So, eventually, after only one small firing, work began. In 2002, a 15-minute gameplay demo was shown at the E3 conference. It immediately won five awards. Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, who was a huge fan of the Doom franchise, was brought on board to do the music and sound effects for Doom 3. Doom 3 released on August 3, 2004, and again was a critical success. It sold more copies than any, 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 any other id game before it. The engine was so advanced that Doom 3 became a benchmark for system performance testing. Did you have a hot machine? Well, you did if it could run Doom 3 on full settings. Also, unlike all previous Doom games, Doom 3 had a very engaging story. The story, effects, lighting, and animation made for a generally slower moving but much more terrifying game. Frankly, playing Doom 3 scares the crap out of me. This game still looks great even today, eight years after its initial release. 
So let's talk a little bit about the future. Is there any news on the future of the Doom franchise? Well, back in 2008 at QuakeCon, John Carmack hinted that plans for Doom 4 might actually be in the works. Over time, more info has been released. They're planning for it to have a gameplay style more in line with the fast-paced action of the original two games, as opposed to the more survival horror type gameplay of Doom 3. As far as I can see, Carmack's last official line on the game was a QuakeCon 2011. He said that 2011 would be devoted to the release of Rage, and then things would happen with regard to Doom 4. In 2012, some supposed screenshots of the game were released by Xbox Magazine. They were quickly discredited by id, and we were promised that when they do show something, it would be awesome. So I will keep everyone posted on news of Doom 4 as it develops. So with all that behind us, where can we get Doom today? Well, you can get Doom in a vast multitude of places. In 1997, id released the source code for the original Doom, so you can find ports all over the web for every imaginable platform. I actually remember back uh, when I first got out of school in 2004, one of, the, one of the guys that I worked with had an old black and white iPod mini, and uh, he had jailbroken it, and he had put... Uh, he had put Doom on his iPod Mini, it, and it looked just fine. It was all in, in green and black on the little LCD screen, but hey, it looked great. Officially, however, you can get the game on Steam in a variety of versions that are all around $5 each. Now, if you haven't got any of the games and you want to experience them all, you could pick up the recently released Doom 3 BFG edition off Steam for around $30. It contains all three games, plus the expansion for Doom 3, all optimized to run on Windows. This is a great pack, and if you're going to get one, I recommend this one. So time for a bit more email. I got a few Doom-specific mails this time around. First, we'll start with an email from Martin. He writes, Hey Joe, me again. Have a quick story for you. When I was visiting my father with my sister Sarah, he would usually set up a network game to play with us on weekends, be it Duke Nukem, Heretic, or Doom 1. I have plenty of fond memories playing these FPSs. One story in particular stands out to me the most. In a game of Doom, all three of us were in a hall, and my sister had picked up a rocket launcher. Because she was terrible at games, and we wanted her to be careful with it, but uh, in that instance, she saw a bad guy and fired away into a nearby wall, exploding all three of us. As my death camera showed us all turning to goop, my father howled in laughter. I wasn't so amused. We never let her live it down. Flash forward years later, we got together during Christmas to play Halo 3. We were all having a good time until I misfired my rocket launcher into our own warthog and killed us all. My sister looked at me, and without missing a beat to me, she said, Did you just pull a Sarah? My dad instantly howled away while my sister followed up with, I guess this makes us even. I don't want to hear it from you again. Well, thanks so much, Martin. That's just that. That's that's really great. Like I said, I love the I love these stories, and you know, everyone has all these great gaming stories. And I know before you talked about them specifically with your father, but you know, I have a lot of them with my friends and stuff like that. And it's just you know, you create all these great little inside jokes around gaming where you know something will happen. You look at another person, and you'll both start cracking up, and no one around you understands. And I love it. I just love it. I love it so much. So thanks again for that email. Next, Josh sent us in a voicemail all about Doom, so let's give that one a listen. Hey Joe, it's Josh from Portland, Oregon. Um, just calling in again to the upper memory block. I love the podcast, buddy. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. Um, listen to it at work, it helps me get through the day, um, and it's very re-listenable. Um, I've been listening to uh, back episodes, and um, it's great from the beginning, so... Uh, yeah, doing awesome, man. I appreciate you putting them out whenever you can. Um, so, Doom. Doom was really my speed as um, a young gamer. Um, I loved it. I'm sure you'll probably get plenty of, of uh, input on this one because it was it was really groundbreaking. Um, it wasn't my first FPS. I think my first FPS was probably uh, uh, Wolfenstein 3D. But uh, Doom was definitely the first uh, great one. Um, you can you could definitely say I was an FPS junkie after Doom. Um, it really was a work of art. Um, the artwork for it, the graphics and everything like that, you know, for their time, were just mind-blowing. Uh, I still remember the first time getting you know, into that game, getting the shotgun, and uh, just thinking how awesome that was. Um, but the interesting thing about Doom, um, here in the States at least, 
<clears throat> I'm not sure if the, how far reaching this was, but Doom came out at a time where uh, the religious right in America had uh, essentially declared war on um, anything fun <laughs> in the media. And violent video games was a big target. Um, it was one of their one of their favorites as an organization called Focus on the Family, which is a um, basically it's an evangelical Protestant um, publishing house, I think. Um, and they put out a ton of stuff around the same time as Doom um, about how you know it's, it's a demonic game and kids will be violent and yeah, I don't know, possessed by Satan. And, um, shoot up their schools and kill their families and be awful, you know, citizens later on in life and, and how these games should be banned. So, of course, there was, you know, there's a big boycott from uh, religious groups. I know the Protestant church, Catholic church, there's a lot of people speaking out against it. Uh, but it was so much fun that, you know, I, I was certainly not allowed to play it at my house. Um, I got a copy of it on Shareware and played it for a little while until my parents figured out what it was and then... <laughs> Um, they made me get rid of it, so uh, I just had to sneak it at my friend's house and play there. Um, but, you know, it was a, it was a great time. Um, anyway, uh, one of the cool things about it, I thought, were the, the creatures and all the stuff that had been invented for it. And it was a pretty, you know, we, before this, we hadn't seen the, the level of artistry in, in the characters and in gameplay um, in, in the FPS world. And so that was very cool. The one thing that, that I will say is when it came out for Super Nintendo, it came out with that blood-red game cartridge. That was just awesome. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't as fun on Super Nintendo. It just didn't have, uh, I feel like it didn't have the versatility. Um, but, uh, yeah, early on, I think that was probably the biggest draw to me as, uh, as a gamer and really got me into gaming more. Um, funny thing about the whole boycott of those games is that the, the people wanting to game back then, I, I feel, and, and I remember, were pretty much just nerds like me. Um, <laughs> we didn't have any interest in uh, shooting anyone or, you know, doing anything bad or worshipping Satan. We just wanted to play games and read comics. So, uh, it was, you know, interesting times. Uh, hey, but um, anyhow, I appreciate you putting out the podcast whenever you can. Uh, it's great. So... Talk at you later. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Josh. It's really awesome. I'm actually really, really glad you brought up that whole, uh, the whole controversy and the focus on the family stuff. Uh, you know, being that up, up in Canada, um, I guess it, it didn't happen maybe very directly here, but a lot of things, as it tends to be, uh, that happen in the States tend to spill up into Canada. And I definitely remember hearing about all that stuff. I know, uh, I guess uh, Clinton was president around that time, and I know he got involved with uh, with a lot of that. And I know, I think at one point, I don't know if it was, I think he may have uh, ordered some type of committees and to be put in place and to have to look into these things and you know how horrible video games are for our kids and they make everyone Satan worshippers and all that. And I mean, this stuff with gaming, it's just it's gone on forever, you know. And it's 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 frustrating. I know, you know, before video games, it was Dungeons and Dragons was you know promoting Satanism and witchcraft, and then games like Doom, you know, are teaching kids how to kill each other. And then it goes up into things like Grand Theft Auto is teaching them how to steal cars and how to be reckless criminals. And I mean, it just it, it's it's never ending, and and it's frustrating as as you know a member of of I guess the the gamer culture, subculture, whatever you want to call it, to to have these kind of ridiculous statements being made about something that you enjoy doing and you love spending your time with. And, you know, it doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you enjoy to escape, you know, into, into these types of games. And yes, some of them are violent, some of them are not, some of them make you think, some of them are mindless. And it's just, you know, it's just a thing that you do. I mean, for some reason, you know, I know violent movies do tend to get a bit of a... A bit of a bad rap, but not nearly as much, I think, as as violent video games. And I guess I could understand why being, you know, movies are kind of a passive experience. You sit there and you watch Schwarzenegger blow something up. In Doom, you're the guy doing the blowing up. But, I mean, a lot of the time it rests. You know, if if someone, I feel like if someone is messed in the head enough to, to walk into a school and to start shooting the place off, it's not because they played a video game. It's because, you know, they have a psychological issue that that, you know, you could only hope they would have the ability or 
people around them would allow them to get some help for it or, or things like that. It's not that a video game made them do it. They made them do it. If it wasn't a video game, it would have been a movie. If it wasn't a movie, it would have been walking into a store. I mean, it's ridiculous. So thanks so much for that comment. You know, you made me think I didn't get into it in as much detail as you did. So I'm glad that you, uh, that you brought it up. Thanks so much, Josh. Attention, attention! Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. Big question of the show, does Doom hold up today? You are damn straight it does. I mean, its limitations are far outweighed by how much fun the fast-paced action is. While I said Wolf 3D doesn't hold up because it's too basic, the features and fidelity that the Doom engine adds brings the original two games up to a level where they are still a blast to play even today. Doom 3, while a totally different animal, is also awesome. I'd stack that game up to any other FPS that has come out since 2004 and say with confidence it still looks amazing. If you have not played Doom, you are missing out on a series that defined gaming as it is today. This is what an FPS is. Wolf 3D put first-person shooter games on the map. Doom made them a phenomenon. You have to try this out. I mean, if you haven't played Doom, I can't imagine that you have. I mean, it's such... It's so well known, but if you have not, go on Steam, get the BFG edition, Google online. There's some places where you can play the original game free in a browser. I mean, just give it a try. You must. It's it, This is a must-play game, a must-play game series. It Yeah, just give it a go. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a Mickey, Mickey day. day. So now that I got all riled up, it's time to close the show. So thank you to everyone who sent in emails this week. Next time around, which will be two weeks from today, I'm not going to do like a weird reset to get me back on the old two-week schedule. We'll just start a new two-week schedule from now on. Uh, we are going to cover the 1992 survival horror game series, Alone in the Dark. As always, I love it when you send me emails or audio comments. You can send those to podcast at umbcast.com. You know, you can either write me an email or you can record me a little a little voice memo on your smartphone or using crappy mic on your computer doesn't matter as long as it can play on a computer i can play it on the podcast i want to thank as usual rick moyer for his great audio work you can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com he does incredible work if you have a podcast or if you have any other kind of you know media request he does web work he does art it's yeah go check him out rick moyer certainly is a renaissance man you can, as usual, check out the show notes at umbcast.com, and you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Of course, follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow, and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or stream us live at Stitcher Radio. So that's that, and we will see you next time for Alone in the Dark, here in the Upper Memory Block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.